Blog Talk Radio. It's time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646 716-4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. Welcome everybody. Monday, April 11th. Woohoo! This year's going by and what's going on with the market? So much for that prediction that uh, we hit the high here a week or so ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, and we're so grateful to have you as our listener. Again, our commitment to you is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime and anywhere. Talk about relevant, timely information. Jack Nunnery and I, my co-host, hooked up with Brian Montgomery uh, this past Friday late afternoon. Now, normally Jack's out on the bay, but when he that we're going to interview my Brian, he says, I'll forgo from fishing and come on in and enjoy, enjoy this interview. And Jack found his podcast voice. You'll have to listen to this. It's pre-recorded, but we're going to be playing that in the second half of this podcast for those of you listening live. So good to have you here with us. So, so excited. We're going to be talking about um, why it is taking so long to get the FHA commissioner and uh, HUD nominees are confirmed. That's one of the things we're talking about servicing. We're talking about it's been tough for first-time home buyers. There's a lot of great information that Brian shared with us from his perspective. And I invited him to come on to the podcast because of how I heard him speak uh, with Jack Connick, which was last – Jack was our guest last week. So we're bringing them back from um, what I heard at the Lender, Leader, Lender One conference in Phoenix here, gosh, a month ago or so. Anyway. Good to have you here, folks. We're, hey, we're proud to be a part of this industry syndicate. Encourage you to check out all of the podcasts at industrysyndicate.com. Also, we want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, starting right off with the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. The NBA does a great job of bringing you and being at, bringing us information timely and uh, is a strong advocate for us on the Hill. Get that Mortgage Action Alliance. We talk about it regularly. Get the Mortgage Action Alliance, the MAW app. Out of your favorite um, uh, store, uh, the online store, for whether it be Apple or Google or wherever, however you go get it. But it's there. Go get it, download it, and have that be a part of your weekly routine by checking. Again, be a responsible lender. Have your voice heard. They're doing the work. All you have to do is make some clicks, and that voice goes right in. Your voice goes right into the hill, right to your respective um, legislators. Also, special thank you to the Nastra's Fusion Mortgage Bot Solution. Set custom decisioning parameters to help streamline the approval process. Go back and listen to Chris Zingo, who we had as a guest in March 7th. The information is really relative, and we're always interested to see what uh, the number one fintech company in the world is thinking. And uh, Chris did a great job of sharing their thoughts and their vision. Uh, Lenders One and the Mortgage Collaborative, these are the two co-ops that we recommend you become members of both of them. I'll never again replace the MBA, but these two are wonderful ways in which you can connect in a more intimate setting with your peers. Lenders of the same size, find out what's going on, checking peer analysis. What's, what, are your, what, are your, what are you experiencing from cost? What are you doing that's working? What's not working for you? And it's these kind of open formats. And then getting to know us vendors that are there, I'm there 
with the podcast. I'm there with Transformational Mortgage Solutions. And it's really important that for vendors to get to be a member of both of these as well as the lenders. Such a great connection tool, uh, making meaningful relationships so you have and know what's going on, have the latest information, know what's going on in the industry. Total Expert turns customer insights into actions to increase loyalty and drive growth for banks, lenders, credit unions, and other financial institutions. Check out Joe Wellu's interview that we did on March 14th. Did a great job. Total expert, powerful, the industry-leading CRM, and so much more. Also, Knowledge Coop does a great job of helping you train your people. Check out Knowledge Coop. They've gone live with their new Knowledge Coop platform, and we're so excited. We've got our podcasts on there, or we were about to have them on there if we can i got it that's my bad i forgot to get that over to you paul and nikki we got to get that up and running right away also mobility mmi and modix these two recruiting platforms are not recruiting platforms they're database so you access data about your loan officers you're considering working with uh and hiring and you can find out exactly what they're funding rather than that now we all know loan officers never fib or stretch that you know it's like that fishing how big was the fish well they never they kind of have a tendency to work with uh, expanded numbers let's put it that way nice way to put it knowledge group will tell you exactly what's going on i'm sure mobility mmi and modix will tell you exactly what they're funding and with whom powerful tool when it comes to recruiting something we use here in our consulting firm transformational mortgage solutions and helping clients i encourage you to check out both these <laughs> sorry about that choked me up when i think of that recruiting stuff it is a big topic lately, but also SnapDoc. SnapDoc powers over 3 million mortgage closings for a, in the in last year for lenders with, in title insurance companies and notaries. <laughs> Still choked up over that. Anyway, also Success Kit, you can get unlimited referrals, but can you make it all from, from your prospects? Trust others more by getting uh, getting their your customer testimonials on um on your website or being told. I mean, these guys do a great job of collecting testimonials from your customers and then sharing them. It's the best way for you to get business. Whether you're a loan officer or a company, check out successkit.io, successkit.io. And also listen to the interview we did with Julian Lumpkin on January 10th. Also, Lender Toolkit. God, I love Brent, Emler, uh, Brent Brumley and uh, Brent Emler, these two characters are so much fun. What amazing products they have. They have raving fans. NRL says they love this technology because of what it does for them, enabling them to become more efficient. Also, Form Free. Brent Chandler was on on February 28th, again, talking about the innovation that they have, as well as Simple Nexus. We had Lori Brewer on on March 21st. Again, Lori's company, LBAware, was acquired by Simple Nexus. Great story of what's going on with Simple Nexus. And we're so thrilled to have them as one of our newest sponsors. Also, DW Consulting, Debbie Wemus, as well as uh, her partners that she works with there, help you get your LinkedIn profile right so it attracts the right people. And that's not just for job changes. More and more people are going to check out LinkedIn profiles to find out if they want to work with you. Are you as experienced as as you represent? So it's a great way to have your story told and get more business. So also a final thank you to Rob, Les, Alice, Alan, Matt, and of course, my new co-host, Jack Nunnery. Good to have you all with us. Appreciate it. Rob Van Rapphorst did not get in a minute to us to his the MBA Mortgage Minute this week. 
but we've got some updates. Alice will share a little bit with that on that. I'll touch on that, but we wish, wish Rob well and can't wait to have his segment back next week. Let's get over to Les Parker with this week's TM Spotlight and a macro view of the markets. Can't wait for this one. Les? TM Spotlight Soundbites is brought to you by Power Seller, making hedging easy. We see bad rates arise. That means bubbles go away. Grow stocks pop along with dreams of home ownership as affordability rises significantly. It was down 22% before rates rose 100 basis points in March. In the pocketbook, it seems like the cost of everything is rising, or on back order, what saves us from the Fed's fire hose that puts out the flames of inflation and douses growth? Painful trouble elsewhere in the world lists the dollar and offers hope that rates settle down. But in the meantime, when bad rates make you lose your lunch, there's a bathroom on the right. These views are my own. Don't give up. Look up at tmspotlight.com. Good job. Les Parker combining his talents with Gary Cantrobone. Turns out a great, another wonderful segment. Man, that is true. Interest rates, just 100 basis points. What is going on? Thinking of my daughter and her son-in-law just closed on their house, locked it up at the bottom. Well, what, what before we shot up, good timing. Luke and Christina, way to go. Um, I shouldn't look at these markets, but check out what Les's newsletter is. It's so timely that you find out what's going on. You can get this, the paid version for free by using, again, uh, the word power as a code to get into the system. Matt, Matt, Matt. Let's see here. Where is our Matt? Oh, there you are. I see you on the switchboard here. Matt Graham, founder and CEO of MBSLive.net, is here with us to give us an update on what we have on the economic calendar and probably a whole lot more. Matt, what's going on here, friend? David, a little bit of everything. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Fred. So, yeah, last week, uh, pretty crazy one, and yet another week where we, uh, you know, thought things might be starting out uh, a little bit more of a bond-friendly note and where things promptly deteriorated. One of those Mm -hmm. uh, beatings will continue until morale improves sort of situations, (laughs) and uh, morale obviously is not improving. So we had uh, last week coming into it, it was the second trading day of April. And uh, as we talked about on the show, we really wanted to see how the first several days of April were trading before passing judgment on whether or not the friendly little consolidation we had at the end of March was something that might, um, you know, be a little bit more long lasting. But things deteriorated promptly. And Tuesday morning was a key moment in that deterioration. It occurred after a prepared speech from Fed Vice Chair Brainerd was released. And in that speech, um, if you if you had told me that any other Fed member, well, perhaps other than Evans, had said what she said, I'd just say, yeah, okay, the Fed has said that before. What are we talking about? Uh, In a nutshell, just the same old, same old about faster rate hikes and a much faster pace of normalization. And as a reminder, for those who need it, uh, normalization refers to balance sheet normalization or the Fed's process of actually shrinking its balance sheets by allowing MBS and Treasury reinvestments to roll off. They set a certain cap. 
and uh, that cap will not be reinvested that particular month, only anything over that cap. So to give you an idea, um, I think last week on the show, I think I said uh, it was $6 billion for MBS. It was actually $4 billion back in 2017, and that was the first round of caps for the normalization process. Uh, this time around, Brainerd's comments foreshadowed something that happened the following day in the release of the Fed minutes, and uh, markets correctly guessed that her comments may foreshadow a little bit more specificity. So the next day in the Fed minutes, $35 billion a month would hmm. be the cap for MBS. And uh, that's quite a bit bigger than $4 billion, clearly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's a significant number for another very important reason, and that is when we go and look at the New York Fed's um, you know, historical MBS purchases on their website, we can go back to 2017 when we were in somewhat of a similar rate environment and also a similar environment with respect to the Fed having fully tapered and being in the process of unwinding the balance sheet. And we can see what the reinvestments were before they started um, normalizing the balance sheet. And so if you look at those reinvestments and compare them to the number on the balance sheet total, which was like 1.7 trillion, and then look at the 2.7 trillion today and uh, carry the one, extrapolate all of it, it would equate to about $35 billion a month right now in reinvestments, even in a relatively refi-free environment. So all that to say, the Fed is announcing a cap on MBS uh, balance sheet roll-off that is going to effectively mean they're not going to be buying any MBS, more or less, right from the start. So uh, similar stuff for treasuries. Bond markets didn't love it. And the interesting thing we're seeing now is it's the long end of the bond market that's not loving it. So, you know, 10-year, 30-year, 7-year treasuries, all significantly higher in yield, while 2-year treasuries actually had a decent week. Having a decent morning this morning, they're slightly lower, whereas 10-year yields are 8-plus bits higher, almost 2.8 right now. And that whole yield curve inversion, yeah, that only lasted a couple of days, and now we're back up near 30 basis points, uh, big curve steepening. MBS have benefited from that uh, at times, more or less, because they are shorter in duration than 10-year Treasury yields and uh, obviously didn't get hurt as much last week, but have still been hurt quite a bit. Average lender up anywhere between an eighth and a quarter of a point from Friday. Uh, average going rate, five and a quarter percent right now. Uh, everybody's wondering how high could it go. It seems like it's incessantly incessant. <laughs> I have no, <laughs> I didn't have another good descriptor there for you. Uh, it is an incessant and relentless move. There we go. How about rel- relentlessly incessant or incessantly relentless? Try to say that seven times fast. Yeah. So, um, one other thought as far as last week's weakness would be that uh, you know traders understood that we're heading into a week where we have treasury issuance. It is a holiday-shortened week. Japan continues to buy only their own debt and to be a big net seller of uh, U.S. treasuries. We don't have super recent data for that, but we can assume that that's the case based on uh, the previous month's data that we just got, as well as the news coming out of Japan on their focus on buying their own uh, securities. And uh, more Fed speakers, and we are worried to some extent that they're greasing the skids for a pretty hawkish announcement in May, one that at the very least 
hike the Fed funds rate by 50 bits and quite possibly starts the balance sheet roll off right now. Um, earliest guesses were June as of January, and I was one of the earlier guesses there, and people laughed at me. I, uh, I tried to keep my chin up, but now it looks like I may have even been too late, and it could be oh. the May meeting. So, Dave, I really think that this is the kind of stuff that needs to happen before we can mm-hmm. turn a corner. Markets are, are basically trying to, you know, keep going all in on with the Fed, call their bluff, uh, price in the worst possible scenario they can imagine. So that way, once we have clarity as to actually what's going on, then, you know, we know when it's time to come back and how hard it's time to, to bounce back. But until the process begins, until normalization begins, until we see, you know, what liquidity looks like in various parts of the bond market, uh, the path of least resistance is toward higher rates. The faster mm-hmm. it goes higher, the more potential potential uh, pressure we're building to bounce in the other direction. But it's, again, to reiterate what I said last week, even though people were calling for a top, um, it's not something I would bet on. And it's not something oh. I would um, really expect <laughs> or call until you actually see it materialize. Um, and the last thought I have on rates and, and the future and all that is one thing I like to tell my audience at times like this, when we're watching rates rise very quickly, is that I would much rather be wrong about rates bouncing one time and mm-hmm. in a very big way, as opposed to being wrong multiple times on the way up as people are calling tops and rates. So we could shift our stance and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to float my rate right now because I think we've seen a top. And, uh, you know, you might be right about that, and that might feel really great, but I would rather just say, you know, let's wait until we have obvious evidence that a yes. corner has been turned before we jump on that bandwagon. Um, Quite and, yes, true. rates are a lot higher than we thought they would be while, while we're having these discussions, but um, that's where they are. They are where they are. So true. Jack, you're always a big watcher of the markets, Jack Dunnery. Do you want to opine to this? <laughs> Usually has some words of wisdom. Well, thanks, David. Uh, you know, Matt, last week you were talking about uh, resistance on the 10-year at uh, 2.77, and it uh, looks like this morning we're we're testing that resistance. Any any thought there? Um, lucky guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I usually have when one of my technical levels gets hit. But I think the other one I penciled in after this would be 2.83 and 2.91. But as far as a thought as to whether 2.77, um, you know, holds up as resistance uh, or support in this case, since we're talking about yield, uh, you know, no major thought. I just, I just look at those levels as sort of the next place I would expect to see yields maybe target or congregate if they were to move higher or lower. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much as as firm ceilings or floors. Yep. Yeah. Thanks. You know, David, I, I'm just I'm not surprised by all of this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we've had inflation now for almost. Uh, you know, um, we were talking several months ago about Jerome Powell's challenge of of, of landing you know, mm-hmm. this airplane uh, safely, uh, you know, I think that's out the window now. I mean, with, you know, concerns over inflation and rising commodity prices and the war in Ukraine and the Federal Reserve's monetary policy going forward, you know, I just think we're in a real bumpy ride. And, and you know, I, you know, we, 
you know, like I said, inflation's been up almost a year. Oil prices have been up for some time now. Uh, all we've heard to date is a lot of talk and a quarter point rise in the Fed funds rate. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me to see, you know, the Fed reacting so vigorously now. Um, and and so, mm-hmm. you know, buckle up. The next couple months are, are, are going to be interesting. And to Matt's point, you know, until, until we get, uh, you know, some clarity, I think you're going to see a real skittish market, uh, both, you know, over in the bonds and over in the equities. So, um, you know, here we yeah. are. Yeah. Oh, skittish would be friendly right now. I think that. Well, I, think I, was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to keep it clean, David. Yeah. Like one of our listeners just wrote in the quote of the week. Matt Graham, the beatings will continue until morale improves about rates. That's good, Matt. Very well. Nice to yeah. understand. And morale can improve as soon as the beatings stop. Yeah. Figure that one out. Uh, yeah, yeah, go figure that one out. Great, great, great segment. Appreciate you so much. Do check out what Matt publishes and his website and great content. I've got that behind me all the time. I'm looking at it. Sometimes I keep it behind me because I don't like what it's saying lately, but I do turn around and look at the screen all the time, but it is pretty cool to have that sitting there flashing away behind me when I'm on my conference call. Um, check out how you can get the extended trial at no additional cost, or I mean, no no credit card required. Otherwise, a credit card is required, but you get extended period by putting in LOL for looking on landing as the sign-up code. So, Matt, thanks for extending that extended trial period to our listeners. Do appreciate that, friend. Thank you. You bet. All right, man. Take care of the markets. Don't let this go any higher. I <laughs> will do. Have a good week, Dave. All right. You bet. You too, sir. Alice Alvey is here with us. Alice is CMB Vice President of Education and Training at Union Home Mortgage. We're so grateful that Bill and Al and the team there let her get away each week for about an hour to take the ball and shake off a little bit. So take the, okay, Alice, you can go do this, but come back here. Get back here right away. We need you so badly. So what do you got for the legislative update? Ms. Alvey? Oh, well, thanks, Dave. Well, I think I'll uh, I'll fill in a little bit for the MBA there at the CTs that that they had published today. Just really talked a little bit about the fact that they have now put out a blog post to support the reduction in the FHA MIP premiums, which I talked a little bit about last week. FHA's got a a lot of liquidity and actually a little encouragement for folks to listen ahead to the the segment with Brian Montgomery. But um, it is something that we don't see any numbers yet. No one's talking in amount, you know, if you want to know how much, how much. uh, No one's willing to throw that number out yet. We definitely have to wait until the first quarter's report is published to see where FHA stands and, and how conservative they are in looking forward to some of the expenses that can be in the market and the volatility in the market. That'll all be factored into their uh, calculations, and, and then we'll have some information to work on and see from there. Um, I love the conversation about the markets. It, um, Chris Bennett of Vice Capital Markets, yes. just a really intelligent Wonderful mortgage banker, intelligent mortgage banker, and wonderful human being. I've known Chris yes. for a really long time since he graduated college. And um, just really an amazing um, person who's very knowledgeable of the bond markets. And he put out a video, for those of you who can find it uh, online, called the Category 5 Hurricane and Bond Land. Uh, so it's a really insightful uh, couple-minute, yeah. three-minute piece that you can get a little background on what's happening in the markets like Matt and um, uh, you guys were all just discussing. And he's got a few more out there. He's got uh, – there's a video on 
uh, Hedging 101 and a few others. So yeah. just a, for those of you wondering what the heck's going on, there are some great resources, and he's the one I recommend. Yes, we do love, we um, do love it. Yeah, he's a great guy. So my one piece for the legislative uh, update was really there isn't a whole lot going on on that front at the moment, uh, knock on wood. So I do want to just give a quick update on some of the rumblings that are out there about the change in medical debt that's going to be impacting credit scores. Uh, So effective July of 2022 this year, paid medical collection debt will no longer be included on consumer credit reports. The key word in that sentence is paid. I've read okay. several headlines of, oh, you know, everybody's credit score is going to go up by 100 points because all medical collections are going to be gone. And that's not, you have to read the fine print. So anything at 500, below $500 is going to not be appearing on credit reports, but it has to be paid medical collection debt is now going to come off. And, and that's really where the trouble starts, as many of you know. It's, it's not that I have a medical debt. It's that it's when it goes on. Now it's just appearing as a general collection account that's impacting my score. Um, so the, another thing that's going to change is these collection accounts won't be appearing for 12 months. Today they come into a credit score at the six-month mark. Uh, the piece effective July 1st is going to be pushing that out, giving people a little more time to solve for any credit uh, misunderstandings. Uh, as we like to say, uh, mm-hmm. with our collection accounts. So that um, it won't be the $500 piece isn't going to happen until the first half of next year. So that's the other piece. So um, there's a ton of customers out there. You know, if you go by the CFPB data, it's something like 1.6 billion credit accounts for over 200 million adults every month are managed. And um, so we're looking forward. This change will definitely help some consumers. So that's the facts on that, Dave. I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, I think as interest rates are going up, home affordability is going down. Nice to know that mm-hmm. there's something out there that's helping the consumers. Very good, Alex. Yeah. So much. Appreciate it very much. And uh, say hi to Bill and Al and the team there. Uh, such a great company. We appreciate them sharing you so generously each Monday with us. So thank you. And our audience loves your updates. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. Again, I tell you, everybody. You're you bet. Go to our website, look at Lenny. You can download all of the updates from each one of these segments. If you want to just binge on Alice, you can go to the website and binge away on all her, on her updates, as well as Alan, as well as uh, Les, as well as uh, Matt and all of it. Now, Matt's material is kind of like birdcage material. It's, 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 it's hot and it's really important. But then it's not because it's news. So, Matt, we love you, bud. You're so fun. Anyway, let's get over to, hey, Alan is stuck in an airport. I got a text message from, I want to be on the podcast, but I can't. I'm flying out to NBA Tech. He says, uh, so I, my flight's delayed, so he's probably up in the air right now. He's not hearing this. But he will be back next week with a full update of what went on at the NBA Tech Conference. Looking forward to that report. Safe travels, and uh, appreciate you so much. As a result of that, that ends up, wraps up the weekly mortgage update, the first half of our podcast. If you're listening live, just stay right here because we're going to go right into the hot topic segment, folks. And if you're listening on a downloaded basis, just move on to the next podcast because that's exactly how we do it. We break the live podcast into two segments each and every week and uh, makes it a little more digestible on a downloaded basis. That ends this topic. Let's move into the hot topic. I mean, that means, let me say that again, it ends the weekly mortgage update and now we'll move into the hot topic segment. 
Welcome to the Hot Topic segment of the Looking on Lending podcast. It is Monday, April 11th. We're thrilled to have with us our special guest, Brian Montgomery. He is the founding partner and chairman of Gates House Strategies, LLC, in the D.C. area. He was the former HUD Deputy Secretary. And uh, Jack and I caught up with him uh, last week. Have you heard me on the first on the first podcast or the podcast earlier, Jack normally is out fishing on a Friday afternoon. And he, he, I invited him to come in and do this. He says, get a chance to talk with Brian Montgomery. Are you kidding? Yeah. Give up fishing for an afternoon and come in and join us. You know, Jack is kind of semi-retired, but Jack, tell me what your thoughts are. We, 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 we what our listeners are about ready to listen to. I know that was a good interview and you definitely were on. Oh, you know, David, I, I just, thought that Brian touched on so many uh, topics that are germane to the environment that we find ourselves in now. And, you know, Brian, uh, you know, has been well-connected, you know, through the halls of Congress and on the Hill and the policymakers. And it's, you know, it really is insightful when you get an opportunity to spend some time with somebody, you know, that has been, you know, in policy formation himself, and certainly has Excellent. influenced policymakers. Yeah, and he did it on a bipartisan basis, which you're going to hear about in this interview. Let's get into the interview that Jack and I did with Brian late Friday afternoon this past week, and we'll get started now, and we'll have some comments afterwards. Jack Nunnery, it is so good to have you on the phone with me, and we have an iconic individual we get to interview today, Brian Montgomery. Jack, let's get started. You ready? Absolutely, David. So, Brian, anyone listening to this podcast knows who you are. You're a veteran in our industry, been a leader for many, many years with all the positions you've held of significance, of influence. But for those that are new to our industry, we have a lot of them listening to this podcast. Would you give a little bit of a background of how you got to where you're at today, a little bit of your journey and your path, please? Well, thank you for for having me on, David and Jack. It's a bit of a long, winding road, but I will spare you the minutia of it. Well, today, now that I'm out of my government service, I'm a co-founder and partner at Gatehouse Strategies. We're focused on all things mortgage-related, risk, business development, compliance, regulatory issues, you name it. We also have a focus on, by the way, multifamily and subsidized housing and community development as well. But a lot of folks know me from my government service. I'm the immediate past deputy secretary of a position I held concurrently, by the way, with being commissioner of the FHA and assistant secretary for housing. I used to call it three titles and one paycheck. So the taxpayers were definitely getting their money's worth out of me. The FHA commissioner is a job I actually had twice. I guess I'm the only guy dumb enough to do the job, not just once, but twice, under three different presidents, under Bush, Obama, and Trump. I was uh, home over into the Obama administration for six months, running the FHA, which in 09, there was a lot going on, as we all know. So I, I really enjoyed the housing field, working with folks. It's one of the issues in Washington, D.C., I found that it's a little easier to find a little consensus, a little easier to get a little bipartisanship, which I like, because that's quite frankly the way you get stuff done. Yeah. It's hard to get it done, especially when you look at where the environment is today. You've been there. So let's talk a little bit about the environment in Washington, D.C. It seems to be tough right now. But having been through the process three times, let's start off with this question. Why is it taking so long to get the FHA commissioner and HUD nominees confirmed? Well, in the old days, 
a new administration, a president would get their nominees, right? It didn't matter if it was a HUD or labor or commerce. Now, the path for a cabinet secretary nominee or deputy secretary might be a little more difficult, but typically assistant secretaries, commissioners, unless they were really contentious, largely got through unanimous consent. Well, those days are in our rearview mirror. Now, both parties are guilty of it. Now, it's literally just a battle in the trenches, even to get assistant secretaries and commissioners and you name it, confirmed. It took me seven months to get confirmed as FHA commissioner the second time. First time, it took about two and a half months. And first time I got through unanimous consent, the second time, even though it took seven months, when I got a vote, I got 73, I believe, which means I got about half Democrats. So people would say, well, why did it take so long to get <laughs> confirmed if you have good bipartisan support? So this go around, I think it's just gotten even more contentious. And I decided to publicly support Julia Gordon. She's enormously mm-hmm. qualified. And to yep. be clear, she supported me when I was up years ago. And uh, I think they need her, someone of her experience and uh, housing policy, hands-on experience. She worked at FHFA, worked at Center for Responsible Lending. They need her in the seat. So we had a little movement earlier this week. You know, they got her vote out of committee. It took the vice president of the United States to break the tie. It's unfortunate she didn't get at least some Republican support. But So I think she's now hopefully on a path to, to get in there in the next few weeks. Well, we certainly do hope so. We've been impressed with her. When I've heard her speak, very qualified. Jack, let's get over to you. Thanks, David. Brian, it's just an amazing journey that you've been on. But speaking of tough environments, we're getting into seemingly rougher waters in the housing market. It's been challenging for the first-time home buyers for some time now, given unrelenting home price appreciation and an affordable housing supply shortage. But now it's getting even tougher with rates going up along with prices and supply shortage. What is FHA doing to assist first-time minority and LMI borrowers? And what can they be doing? Better yet, Brian, how's the rest of Washington viewing the housing market? And will there be any innovative efforts to assist younger first-time home buyers, many of them minorities? Well, as we know, the FHA has been the the hallmark of not just first-time home buyers, but obviously minority home buyers as well. Every year, 35%, give or take a few, of FHA endorsements are to minorities, now, which, by the way, is almost two times what the GSEs are. The GSRs are around 17 or 18%. But within that construct, you're dealing with a housing market today that is very short on inventory, especially starter home inventory. And we know there's a lot of reasons for that. And Some would say you could place some of that blame at the local level. Some of the regulatory barriers and hurdles that communities have put up, particularly on each coast, particularly in California, I would add, is just before you even turn a shovel of dirt, you've got $100,000 in fees racked up for, you know, set-asides and things of that nature. That's not much Washington can do in that space, but I think California is trying to address some of that. But you just really have an imbalance where housing is just getting so far out of reach for so many families, because given the cost to manufacture loans, given the cost to obviously build housing today with construction costs, building material, labor costs, everything going up, people aren't building in that entry home level. I think you start to see a rise in condominiums. The FHA updated their rules four or five years ago to make that a little easier for condominiums. So in terms of the innovation, you've got innovation going on, but you also have a really aggressive enforcement backdrop. 
You've got a CFPB director that's really focused on turning up the heat on servicers, many of whom who I think have done a tremendous job trying to help their borrowers who hundreds of thousands of them are still in COVID-19 forbearance. Many of them have rolled off, but a lot of our folks who work in industries that were greatly impacted by the pandemic and still haven't fully recovered. And you've got a backdrop of rising interest rates. So you got a tough starter home inventory, both new and existing. You've got higher interest rate environment, shortage of inventory. It's a delicate balance right now. So I would hope as FHA and the GSEs and the housing policymakers in this town understand that there's some parts of the backdrop that need to change to break the calculus a little of you. Yeah, I think you brought up the headwinds that the starter home market or anyone building today is. And I just came back to the TMC conference in Miami. The president, uh, CEO of the Home Builders Association talked about in California alone that 50% of the price is made up of regulation to build a new home, 50%. I mean, that's just astounding. Any comments to that? Do you see anything easing on that? Well, it manifests itself in deleterious ways, right? <laughs> yep. And part of that is, look, you've seen a rise in homelessness. And by the way, it's not the chronically homeless. A lot of folks that just don't have anywhere to live. I mean, we all know for years, we've all been to Los Angeles area many times. It seems like people just kept moving further and further out, right? Right. And now even being way out in Inland Empire, Rancho, Cucamonga, San Bernardino, well, you're two hours from downtown. The housing there is still way out of reach for most families. Where does it stop? That is a great question. I'd love to find someone who could give us an answer on that. Let's turn to the servicing side of the business, Brian. The CFPB, led by Director Chopa, has been very vocal and doing so on social media on a number of lending issues, but he seems to have the mortgage servicers in his sights. It would appear servicers have done a lot to help people get through this crisis thus far, keeping people in their homes consistent with the government's forbearance and foreclosure policies. Nevertheless, some would say they have done a very good job. That seems fair. But now the environment seems fraught with risk for servicers. What is going on here, really? And what do servicers need to be thinking about and doing about all this to stay out of the line of fire? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's one big difference between the environment services are in today versus what they were in 08, 9, 10, 11. A pandemic that's no one's fault, not the borrower's fault, not the lender's fault, darn sure the servicer's fault. And it impacted all of us in ways we're extremely familiar with. I mean, literally, I'm at running the FHA at the time, and we're talking to the CFPB and the FHFA almost every day. We're talking to the lending community, the servicing community, the low-income housing advocates the community development, the mayors. We're talking to them daily, weekly, working with them. We're collaborating because we were. there was a sense that we were all in this together. Right. And we're all trying to help the citizens of this country. We're all trying to help homeowners or those less fortunate who live in subsidized housing. And the only way we did that was by working together. And I don't know what it is in this administration, and I try to be open-minded mm-hmm. about it. It's almost like what can they do to be contentious about so mm-hmm. many things? I mean, even before they got into office, some of their designees, they weren't even nominated yet, already threatening servicers. I'm going, what have they done this go-around, right? Plenty of blame to go around 15, 12, 14 years ago. But this go-around, they literally morphed themselves overnight into totally remote operations, just like everybody else. And quite frankly, I think most of them did a pretty darn good job. And they have no interest in seeing a borrower fail. That's costly 
for the borrowers, certainly it's costly for them. So I just don't understand the backdrop and the need just to be contentious. Waking up every morning, it's like, well, how can we put more demands on an industry? And I'm just talking about servicing here. They can throw rocks at whoever else they want to. That's quite frankly doing a lot they can to help borrowers who are in very difficult circumstances. Continue to reach out to borrowers, knock on their door, and then they're all doing this. Maybe some of these regulators need to go spend a little time with some of these servicers, so, companies that are going out knocking on doors saying, hey, I'm not here to take your home. I'm here to help you. Yeah. Families hurting out there. That would be so good when we're advising companies to say, when was the last time the executive leadership team went out to actually sit and do the jobs? I think that's one of the things I love about Southwest Airlines. They make the executives go out and get down inside the belly of the airplanes and load the luggage. I think we could carry that to D.C. What can they do or should they do right now in light of the assaults, if you will? Well, look, the best thing they can do is they want to help their clients. They want to help their customers, and they want the, the loan to succeed, and they follow the guidelines from the GSEs, from FHA, VA, USDA. And so the best thing they do is have their teams keep focused, keep their head down on helping customers, let other people fight the battle, whether it's a trade group or whatever. And you look at some of the surveys out there, I mean, look, there's always mistakes. There's always things that follow through the cracks. But, you know, as we know, there's a lot of friction in this industry. There's a lot of moving parts around. But by and large, and I've worked very closely with many services, some of the biggest ones out there for years, and their executives, no even mid-level management, people down in the trenches, they want to get it right. And I just think there's a part of D.C. up here that assumes the worst of intentions. That's really, really true. Jack? Ryan, let's stay on the theme of enforcement. HUD and the Justice Department worked hard to bring some sanity to the use of the False Claim Act to pursue lenders via a memorandum of understanding signed in 2019. I understand you were very involved in that agreement. Can you explain how that came about? Is the memorandum of understanding in force and working? And can you talk a little bit about that process and if we might see the return of the False Claim Act? Well, it's really never gone away in the purest sense of the word. I remind people, False Claim Act has been around since the Civil War, which, as we all know, was used to go after, uh, let's just say, rather less than honorable people selling diseased meat or sick horses to the Union Army. So context of FHA, yes, we worked very hard to bring a little sanity to the process. Certainly the Justice Department and U.S. attorneys have a big say in this thing, but we were involved in some of those cases early on, and I, I think people know my view on this, but it's one thing to have fraud and misrepresentation. It's another thing to have clerical administrative errors. And the sad ripple effect of all this was the largest depositories just walked away from the FHA program. And that's why we worked so hard to bring a little sanity to the process, which and that's why we updated the low-level search and the annual search. And sort of the icing on the cake was the MOU of the Justice Department, which, by the way, it's not easy to get the Justice Department to reorient their thinking on things, right? And certainly something as big as the False Claim Act, but our general counsel at the time, Paul Compton, Obviously, Secretary Carson was working hard with Attorney General Barr, and we were able, I believe it was October, November 2019, finalize the MOU, which was put into the U.S. Attorney's Manual, which I think they call the Justice Manual now. Last time I looked, it's still there, and it essentially says, Justice Department, either a U.S. Attorney or Maine Justice Civil, if you're going to pursue a false claim act, you need to do so in concert with working with the FHA and the beauty of this is having a body like the Mortgagee Review Board, 
which is made up of the Senate-confirmed leadership of HUD. So therefore, you're not putting that decision burden on one individual, either the FHA commissioner or the secretary. You now have a governing body that can determine, does this rise to the level of false claim, or is this something else that FHA can pursue on its own to take action? But they don't want to tolerate people that don't follow their rules or, worse yet, claim to have gotten religion around some enforcement action and turn around and do the same thing all over again. But it's a big jump to go from that to the False Claim Act. That's true. So I hope that cooler heads prevail, and we were able to get the support of some of the consumer groups getting that MOU done. So hopefully it endures. While you're hopeful, I'm certain, based on the climate we're in, any predictions on that at this point? Or what would you say to lenders looking at this? I would say it would be hard to unwind a common sense policy that says we are going to bring this being potential false claim act to the HUD Mortgagee Review Board. Note I said HUD, not FHA, because it's made up of HUD leadership. It'd be hard to say that's not a fair process. So you'd have to really take some convincing to tell people, well, that doesn't work. Of course it works. So I hope that part of it endures. Yeah, I come back to the bipartisanship you are able to amazingly do through your leadership there, and that's so significant. We talked about forbearance, and many have come off and have been able to resume payments, either because they have the income or, hey, even received modification, including use of the partial claim. Looking at the challenges around those impacted by COVID and still struggling from the loss of income, how will servicers be able to assist these borrowers going forward, recognizing many are still in industries that are recovering from the pandemic, including hospitality, travel, lodging, et cetera? We obviously early on, I say we, and I'm going back to March and February of 2020, put a lot of policies into place, uh, recognizing that People didn't want complete strangers in their house anymore. And it was a learning process through it. And luckily, we'd had a lot of experience dealing with natural disasters, hurricanes, right? But those are localized or regionalized. You may get three or four states, never 50, including territories and others, get you up to 57 or so. You make improvements to the loss mitigation, the things such as a partial claim and all that. And this administration, look, early on, it's, it's tough. You still don't have people in the, the seats that you need filled. But their credit, they jumped on this pretty quickly. And last year, rolled out some improvements and some changes, just like we had done years before. And, you know, they knew that this was an issue because, the, by and large, it's disproportionate number of the folks in forbearance then and even still today. Not surprisingly, our FHA borrowers, as you mentioned, a lot of them are in industries that are still impacted by COVID-19. So I think they're continuing, I think, to manage that fairly well. The, the big issue will, will be how this homeowners assistance fund plays out. Treasury created the program and left it to the state HFAs. Which, by the way, that's a big job to do for an agency, whether it's you know, Texas, California, Arizona, New Mexico, that already has a day job, right? Hey, while you're at it, go stand up a de novo program. Here's $900 million and to go help homeowners. And obviously, a lot of states brought in contractors. So that, that was slow. It's a naturally slow process to stand up. I'm not faulting the states by any stretch, but that program's really just getting up and running now in most states. So hopefully, that $10 billion pot of money will go to help those low modern income borrowers, especially those that have been so impacted by job loss either unemployment or underemployment, and hopefully it will help stave off till they can get back on their feet. And hopefully COVID will get a little larger in our rearview mirror, and we'll hopefully get to a better place here sooner rather than later. 
Are we seeing any success from that program? I'm speaking about the Homeowners Assistance Fund. It is still so young. I mean, obviously, NCSHA posts data on their website talking about the states and where they stand. So far, I think it's doing what it's intended to do, but I think it's going to probably take a few more weeks, probably even months, before we really see the, the impact of it. Jack? Brian, going back to FHA, the pandemic highlighted the importance of modernization, digital solutions, and the integration of technology that works well with one another. Where does FHA's IT modernization stand? Well, as you all know, I had this job twice. Back when I had it in 05 to 09, I used to tell folks, we really need to modernize FHA's technology and bring it into the late 90s. I kind of still said that 10 years later when I said, look, I'd settled for the late 90s, even though it was now 2018 instead of 2008. But I don't know what it was. It certainly wasn't my good looks. But coming out of the government shutdown in February of 2019, Congress said, all right, we heard you. We're going to give you $20 million as a, as a down payment on this modernization. And so we had a great team largely run by career staff and a great contractor, a woman-owned business. They worked real hard through 2019 and early 2020, I mean, literally just as the pandemic was taking hold, FHA rolled out the electronic submission of claims, which you know, prior to that had been a paper-intensive process, as you all know. So can you imagine with, with COVID and all that, and having to get those claims in via paper? And there's been other improvements to the program. And by the way, not just in single-family and multifamily, and also in the Office of Native American Programs, so their own buying program. There's other modules rolling on, online, and the solution is called Catalyst. The new administration can obviously go whatever direction they want, but I think they do understand there's certainly a need for modernization, and they continue to roll out things relative to improving FHA systems. So, by the way, the big part of it was just digitizing everything, and even still so today, a lot of the, the systems run on mainframes, which are reliable, don't get me wrong, but they're very costly to maintain, and they're hard-coded. We took a page from what Fannie Mae had done and went to a heavy data-centric architecture, moving away from paper, for example, which is big. FHA typically generates a lot of paper. So anyway, I think this administration, again, they can go whatever direction they want, but I think the industry trade groups have gotten behind the modernization effort. And given the great work Fannie and Freddie have done in that area, you don't want FHA to be the weakest link in that chain. How is the fund overall doing, the FHA fund? How is that looking at this point? It looks tremendous. Look, to be clear, its value is placed in home price appreciation, yes, and which we've been very much the benefactor of. But we left the administration with a positive economic value of about $75 billion. That number is now up to about $100 billion. Who would have ever thought the FHA would have an economic value 2x the GSEs? I won't go down the path of what the GSEs had to do in that respect, but there are situations dramatically improving as, as well. But so yeah, the fund's doing well. The capital ratio is way above its statutory minimum. I think it's up over 8% now. And we had put some improvements in going back four years ago to get the reverse mortgage program on sounder footing between Dana Wade and me and Len Wolfson, including the better use of appraisals. We thought FHA had been subject to some appraisal misrepresentation, if you will, years ago. We'll save that subject for another day. So that program went from a minus 19 billion economic value to a minus 9 billion economic to a minus 700 million now to a positive number in the course of four years. So, and that program too is starting to see more uptake. Certainly has over the last 
two years since, since COVID, the reverse mortgage program. Yeah. The president's appraisal task force came out with a report recently. What are some of your thoughts on the PAVE recommendations recently released? I wouldn't say I'm sure they have the, the best intentions when they put this task force together. And I think we'd all agree it's a part of our industry that needs some help, needs some work. But I, I was a little concerned that there would seem to be very little representation of people on the task force that actually worked in this industry day to day. And not just the industry itself, which did have representation from the subcommittee, I believe. How much did lenders, servicers, title companies have input on this? And I don't know that they had that much. But again, taking them at good intentions, they put out some things that I think people are still sort of looking at, letting it soak in, and we'll see where it goes. I know the industry out there, the trade groups, rightly thank the task force for their efforts, but the devil's going to be in the details, right? So now what do we do? Is this going to be through rulemaking? Do you want legislation? I mean, I would be a little leery of a Washington, D.C.-driven appraisal policy. <laughs> I would be leery of it, too, yeah. I mean, I, that concerns me a lot. Again, that doesn't mean there isn't room for improvement. I hope it's, as you could tell, I like the word collaborative. So I hope this is a collaborative process going forward. Well, and you brought that about. When you look back, why do you think you were so successful at bringing both bipartisanship to the table and getting things done that others seemed to struggle with before that? Is it collaboration? And how did you pull that off? And what advice would you have to the new group coming in? Well, maybe just because I'm an old guy now, but even when I was commissioner the first time, the housing market was doing good. It was doing good until it wasn't, right? (laughs) But FHA had kind of fallen down. I mean, our market share in 05 was like 2.5%. FHA was kind of getting, you know, marginalized. So I came with this idea, we need to kind of get FHA back in the game, not compete, right. you will, with the private MIs, but certainly get our market share above 2.5%, which most economists would say, that eh, seems a little low to us. But regardless, I, of course, talked to the White House, talked to the Republicans up on the Hill, and they said, if you want to get something done, you got to go get Barney Frank and Maxine Waters. I said, all right, I can go do that. So I went and met with them, and the House side, certainly on the Senate side, met with the Senator Patty Murray was was on Senate banking and said, look, this is the FHA modernization bill we want to get done. And they were probably a little suspicious at first. But I remember when I talked to Maxine Waters, these numbers may be a little off because it's been a while. But I told her, I said, in the year 2000, we did 5,000 or so FHA loans in your district. All right. So this is 2006 when I'm talking to her. Right. I said, in, in 2000, we did roughly 5,000 FHA loans. So what do you think we did last year? And she looked at me, she goes, I don't know. I said, 34. She goes, 3,400? I go, no, 34. She goes, well, we got to do something about that. I said, yeah, we need help on the loan limits. I said, we barely did 6,000 loans in the state of California in 2006. And she goes, that doesn't seem fair. I said, you're our most populous state. You're darn right it isn't fair. So, look, I know some folks take a stronger view. They want to either be way to the left or way to the right, you don't get anything done. And, and look, if I can get half of what I want, because you'll never get all of it. To me, that's really how you get stuff done in Washington, D.C. By the way, I also learned never be surprised by what you can get just by asking. <laughs> what the hell? And say, hey, yeah. you want to do this. What do you think? Well, this is what I think. All right. Well, this is what I think. Well, it's a little different than what I think. Well, right, let's figure out how we can work together. So important. I'll never forget the time I had just finished a Fox interview in New York, 
And my cell phone rang, and it was one of Barney Frank's staff calling, says, Representative Frank would like to meet with you. Can you come down to D.C.? You're in New York. And I said, sure. And, and so I called one of the Washington, D.C. Bureau correspondents at Fox. I said, is this a good idea? He says, Dave, I recommend it because when the lights go off, cameras go away. He's a very reasonable man. And you can sit down and talk with these guys. Don't be moved by what the rhetoric you see on TV, which really goes to what's going on by the NBA right now. We have the upcoming initiative where everyone's coming into town for the advocacy, and we meet with everyone. I can't stress how important that is, and no well, one would know that better than you. Well, and I'd you know be happy to help him ask, but I again, it just I look Barney Frank put his politics aside. Well, he cared deeply about the issue. He did, and if you're emotionally invested in something like I was and we were, then you can work with people. And again, look, my first FHA modernization bill, which sadly died in the Senate, but we got through the House by a vote of 415. That's amazing. That's, that's almost like renaming a post office, right? <laughs> you don't get margins that big, typically. So look, I'm writing several books, but one of them I've been writing is just how to get stuff done in Washington, D.C., and I hope to get it out here in the next year or so, but okay. how to get stuff done and how to survive here. Well, I think that is such an amazing amount of wisdom that could be shared. We got gridlock. We could use that wisdom in there. Brian, one of the books I hope you're writing is your experience under George W.'s administration when you rode around in Air Force One after 9-11. It's one of the most compelling, one of the most touching stories I've ever heard anyone tell, especially one of my favorite parts was you said, I still have the shoes when I walked around the World Trade Center that has the dust on it. It was like sacred. I took those shoes off and put them in a bag, and I've saved those because it still has the dust on that. Do I recall that correctly? Uh, 100% correctly. And my FEMA jacket, so, and, I, and I didn't work for FEMA, but someone says it's raining. Here's an extra FEMA jacket. And, of course, we had to wear hard hats. I don't know what happened to my hard hat, but one of the things about it was to me the most, but for several days, I tried to clean my shoes that I wore. The day that we went up there was September the 14th when Bush mm -hmm. went to ground zero and I was with him. I just couldn't bring myself to clean my shoes. And about a week later, I'm talking to a couple of colleagues from the White House. We're at the White House. They were also with me that day. And they were talking about not being able to clean the shoes. It's like there's something sacred about them. And I went, I stopped at a container store on the way home. And I went home, wrapped the shoes in a plastic bag put them in a container from the container store, wrapped them in duct tape, and haven't touched them since. Wow. I still have them. And, uh, yeah, look, there's a range of emotions that day, but the one that stuck with me the most, and, and I'm sure for the both of you, the amazement that you have people that are first responders. Yeah. Run into the danger while the rest of us are running out. of. It was a long week. I mean, I was oh. with President Bush on 9-11. I was at the Pentagon twice the next day, including early in the morning to go survey it before President Bush went over there. I was at the National Cathedral that Friday and then standing 10 feet away from him at Ground Zero that Friday. And I think I got maybe 10 hours sleep that whole week. I was a lucky one. So many people who, sadly, had no idea that morning when they woke up the horror they'd be facing. Right. And I'm sure we all have a connection with someone that was impacted that day. And uh, hopefully we won't ever uh, see something like that again. Hopefully not. I certainly do hope not. Thank you so much for your years of service to our industry. Jack, I'll let you wrap up the interview. Well, Brian, David mentioned in the introduction that you're chairman of Gatehouse Strategies. What have you been doing since you left HUD 
And what is gate housing doing in this market and how does that fit into all of this, whether it's affordable housing challenges, origination and servicing and technology? Well, thanks, Jack. I walked out of the HUD building and said, I'm going to take a little time off, which I did, and uh, very little time off. My dad, may rest in peace because he was 83. I don't know if I'm going to go that long, but I just, I don't know that I'll ever retire, but did take a little time off, and then we launched Gatehouse Strategies in May with some colleagues, all of y'all know, that worked at Fannie, Freddie, HUD, and FHA. And we had this idea that servicers, lenders would need help getting through everything facing them with COVID-19 forbearance, and we could help them, property disposition companies. And within that company, we also do affordable housing, working with communities, public housing authorities. We have the former assistant secretary at HUD as one of the partners. And we've been busy. A lot of people have reached out to us. A lot of technology companies, too. That space is just moving really, really fast. We actually hosted a, a dinner last week here in D.C. We're getting a little back to normal. Let's get some of the trade groups. Let's get some of the leaders in housing. And let's let's go have a nice dinner somewhere. It was uh, good to get everybody together and do a little uh, networking and a little discussing of housing issues. And we're going to do more of those going forward. Well, again, we're so grateful for your years of service and what you're still doing inside of this very complex industry of ours. You touched on technology. Are we going to continue to see new levels of innovation? I'd like to get your insights and let's share that with our listeners on where do you think technology is going? Well, there's a lot of things that technology can continue to do in this industry. And you hear a lot about blockchain. You hear a lot about AI and machine learning. And I think a lot of robotics processing automation, which we deployed at HUD, by the way. And there's a role for AI in this industry. I fully understand you want to avoid some algorithms that might disproportionately impact vulnerable groups, if you will, to the point, let's assume the best of intentions. Let's don't stifle innovation. Let's see what is developed. To the degree this industry needs to make changes, and I have every bit of confidence that they can make those changes, but we don't want to create an environment where people are afraid to innovate for fear of some heavy-handed enforcement on something they haven't even yet created. It's like, let's work collaboratively to build the technology. Let's see how the technology works and, again, make changes as we need to. Well, I encourage anyone listening to this message to reach out to Brian and the gatehouse strategies to get guidance on this there's certainly no one that has a better perspective on how to develop technology that threads that needle providing valuable services while still being within the guidelines of being compliant again brian thanks so much for taking on Jax, thank you so much for joining me in this interview it's been just delightful appreciate you so much brian and i'm glad you're planning to stick around for a long time i'm 71 i'm still going strong i have no plans i think my oldest client is jack guttentag he's 98 years old still going strong former professor at wharton on economics so if he's still going we got some runway ahead of us we can keep going for a while sir now we do. Well, thank you again, David. Jack, enjoyed it, and hope to see you soon down the road at a conference. Yeah, look forward to it. Thank you so much. Jack, that was a special interview. I really enjoyed that. You did a great job uh, adding in and, and joining with me on that interview. Thank you. Jack, are you there? Well, anyway, folks, that wraps up this week's interview. I want to say this. You can go check out Brian's in, check out Brian's. Um, uh, website and his background. We've posted it in our on our website. Encourage you to do so. 
It was really good. Uh, Jack, you want, are you back? I'm back, David. Good, good, good. That was a really good interview. The, the part about um, 9-11 really touched my heart. Uh, when he talks about that, it's always something that when he talks about it, there's so much passion and experience in that, what he experienced that day. So can't wait for his memoirs to come yeah. out. Yeah, I mean, to be at ground zero three days after uh, the event, uh, the tragic event, uh, you know, must have been very emotionally moving for uh, Brian. It's got to be. It was a good interview. I appreciate you participating in it. And, folks, we thank you so much for sharing this interview with your colleagues. This is one of those important ones that everyone listened to, both this one and the one we did last week. Of course, I would like to think every one of our podcasts are important and should be shared. Uh, at least we, we believe it is, and it is. We have a growing, growing listener base, and we're so grateful because you, our listeners, have shared this with so many of your colleagues. I encourage you to continue to do so. Next week, we've got Troy Anderson with Finastra coming on, getting to know Troy real well. This guy has got some depth of blending experience along with technology. You're going to enjoy this interview as we talk more about where technology is heading. It's appropriate, seeing as uh, the NBA Tech Conference is going on. So I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors. Again, Finastra, Lenders One, uh, Mobility MMI, Modex, the NBA, Knowledge Coop. The Mortgage Collaborative Snapstock Success Kit, Lender Toolkit, Total Expert, Form Free, and now Simple Nexus. Appreciate you all for being here. Share this podcast and uh, the old saying, click the click, uh, click the like button and share it with others. Anyway, we appreciate you. Have a great week, everyone. Look forward to having you back here next week. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.